Exodus 2, 11 through 25. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. He said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to the father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew the word of the Lord. Well, we are in a series on the book of Exodus. We just started a couple of weeks ago. And uh, as we've been looking at the first couple of chapters of Exodus, uh, it really sets the scene for the story. The Israelites are in slavery. And uh, throughout these first couple of chapters, the big question is, what's God going to do about it? Um, Last week, we saw that what God does about it is Moses is born. Now, even if you don't know much about the Bible, I think it's safe to say most people in this room have probably at least heard of Moses. You may even know that Moses was some kind of great rescuer or liberator for the people of Israel. Um, But so far in the story, that's where we're at. We're waiting for God to do something about Israel's slavery, and um, that's where we start this week to look more specifically at the life of Moses. 
Um, and this is a real turning point in the story because up until this point, we've been seeing this, um, the story really so far is just one of setback after setback, uh, delay after delay. It just keeps going from bad to worse for the Israelites. And we just keep wondering, what is God going to do about all of this? Well, last week Moses was born, and this week we begin to see um, the advent of Moses onto the scene, you know, and, and especially in this passage, here he is, he's all grown up, he's ready to get to work. Uh, in fact, at this point in Moses' life, when this passage begins, he was 40 years old. And, and we look at that and we think, well, okay, it's about time. But just as Moses is getting ready to jump into action here, he, his life blows up, he messes up, he has to run into the wilderness for another 40 years. And, 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 and the question is, it's like, you know, we thought that God was getting ready to do something, but now Moses runs into the wilderness and he leaves the Israelites sitting in slavery for another 40 years. And the question is, why? Why would God let this happen? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever felt like your life is on the slow track? Kind of like, you know, you know eventually your life is going to kick into gear, but right now it feels like you're just waiting in the wings for real life to happen. School can feel like that. It's hard. Or maybe a little harder than that, have you ever felt not that your life was on the slow track, but that your life was on a detour? Like you had all these wonderful hopes and dreams for your life when you were younger, but none of them really panned out. And, and you may still hope that eventually, you know, you can kind of get your life back on track. But right now, it just feels like you're kind of off in the weeds somewhere and you're not really sure how you got there. Or maybe even harder than that, um, have you ever felt not just like your life is on a slow track and not even just like your life is on a detour, have you ever felt like you just ruined your life? Like, like you got so off track, you didn't just get off into the weeds, you crashed. You screwed up your life so badly that you will never, ever get it back on track again. You just ruined your life. That's maybe the hardest thing of all. What do you do if any one of those scenarios describe you? That's Moses in this story. Um, in fact, you know, Moses wanted to do great things, right? He wanted to accomplish amazing things for Israel, but he ended up shoveling sheep poop for 40 years. Um, he wanted to do great things, but he ended up in the wilderness. And, and one of the really frustrating things about this is that, you know, I don't think anybody in this room has messed up your life as badly as Moses probably thought he messed up his life. And yet we find out in this passage that Moses' life really wasn't on a detour. He was in a school. He didn't know it, but he was in a school. It was God's school to prepare him for God's purposes. And if God is going to use you for his purposes, even if you feel like your life is on a detour, if God is going to use you for his purposes, he will send you to the same school. What does that mean? Let's ask three questions about this school that Moses was in and that God will bring us into. Why do we need it? What is it? And how does it work? Okay? Why, why do we need it? What is it? And how does it work? All right? First, why do we need it? Um, one of the most important things to understand about Moses was that he really was a man with, um, with two identities, two cultures, two nations. He grew up the first years of his life in the house of his own family with his own people. But then, because he was the adopted son of Pharaoh, he went to go live in the house of the king of Egypt. 
So he grew up with this Egyptian education, Egyptian training. He grew up in the halls of power with all kinds of privilege. He was the adopted son of the king of Egypt. So throughout his life, one of the big questions for Moses would have been, who am I? What is my real identity? Who do I really belong to? Where am I gonna, who am I really going to identify with? That would have been the question of Moses' life. And in this passage, we find out his answer to that question. Because in the very first verse, it says that when he had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Did you notice that twice in that verse, it refers to the Hebrews as his people? Literally, the word is his brothers. And not only that, it says that he looked on their burdens. Moses was so moved by the oppression of the Israelites that that he was driven to do something. So he made his choice. He decided to identify with the people of Israel and to take up their cause as his own cause. Now, everything we've just seen so far should have made Moses the ideal candidate to rescue Israel. He was educated. He was um, trained. He was decisive. He was committed. Maybe even most importantly of all, Moses was passionate about justice. We see that in this episode with the Egyptian. He you know, wants to rescue his, his uh, Hebrew brother. But that's just the first of three separate incidents just in the space of six verses here where Moses comes to the rescue of um, somebody who's being oppressed. He not only does it with the Hebrew who's being bitten by, beaten by the Egyptian, uh, he does it in the very uh, right after that, the next day, where he comes in between two Hebrews who are fighting and wants to rescue and reconcile them. And he does it a little later than that. When he runs into the wilderness, he sees seven daughters and some nasty evil shepherds come and they're trying to steal their water and Moses rescues them. This is a man who's wired for justice. So if you're looking for a liberator, if you're looking for a great leader, a rescuer to come and rescue you, uh, I don't think you could do anything, you could do better than Moses. I mean, it's like he is the whole passage, uh, package, I mean. But, but why did it all fall apart? Because in the next verse, it all falls apart. Why? I mean, Moses, he kills the Egyptian, and then he has to run for his life into the wilderness. And, and the next day he finds out, um, after he kills the Egyptian, that that everybody knows about it, including Pharaoh, so he has to run off into the wilderness and his life falls apart. Mission is over. Why did that happen? Do you think it's just bad luck? Do you think Moses was like just the victim of circumstances? You know, just a a tough tough, um, break for Moses? No. Here's the problem. Moses had the competency, but he didn't have the character. Yeah, he he was smart, He was educated, he was trained, he was decisive, he was committed, he was a born leader, he was passionate about justice, but he didn't have control over his passion. He didn't have any control over his temper. He he had all these wonderful competencies, but in his heart there there was anger, there was pride, there was arrogance, there was impatience, and all of these things, it blew up his life. You know, um, what does all of this mean? Here's one of the big things this means. It means that even if you believe in God, you will constantly be tempted to serve and worship all kinds of other things that will ruin your life. Even if you believe in God, that you will constantly be tempted to serve and worship all kinds of other things that will ruin your life. So for instance, Moses in this passage, one of the interesting things is that in this passage, 
Moses is presented to us as somebody who doesn't really have any knowledge of God or relationship with God. It doesn't appear um, that Moses has any uh, experience of God so far, at least at this point in his life. It isn't until chapter 3 that Moses really meets God, and we're going to look at that passage next week. But the interesting thing about this is, in two places in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7 and in Hebrews chapter 12, both of those passages refer to this incident with the Egyptian, and both of them say uh, or indicate that Moses did have some kind of faith at that point in his life. He did have some kind of knowledge of God, some kind of belief in God at that point in his life, but in this passage in Exodus, that faith is not in the foreground. All we have at this point are his actions, and what his actions are showing us that something else at this point in his life is really in control of his heart. Because remember what we saw the first week, if you were with us. We saw the Israelites were in slavery. They were serving Pharaoh. But God's vision was not to rescue them just so that they could serve no one. God's vision was to rescue them so that they could serve him. Over and over, God keeps saying to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me. This is one of the biggest themes in the book of Exodus. Everybody's going to serve something And if you serve anything other than God, it will ruin your life. And that applies to Moses here in this passage also. Because look at where he's at here. Just because Moses doesn't believe in God, it doesn't mean that he isn't serving or worshiping something. What's he worshiping? You know, in fact, a lot of times it's the fact that we do believe in God that makes us blind to the things that we really are worshiping other than God. So everyone lives for something, which means that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you know, you might think that's kind of strong language. Maybe that's kind of presumptuous language to say something like that. I'm not a worshiper. I don't even believe in God. But that's accurate language about the human heart. So, for instance, one of the greatest writers of our last generation was a man named David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was not a Christian. Uh, At most, he may have been agnostic. Uh, But he certainly did not have an agenda to defend religion or Christianity in particular. And yet one of the primary themes throughout all of his writing was this idea that every human being worships something. So in one of his most famous books, actually his most famous book, it's Infinite Jest, it's a famous fiction story. There's a conversation in that book between a French-Canadian person and an American person, and they get talking about love. And while they're in the... um, conversation they're having about love that leads the Frenchman to say this to the American. He says, your USA word for fanatic, do they teach you it comes from the Latin for temple? It is meaning literally worshiper at the temple. This love you speak of means only the attachment. Our attachments are our temple, what we worship, no? What we give ourselves to, what we invest with faith. Are we not all of us fanatics? I say only what you of the USA only pretend you do not know. Attachments are of great seriousness. Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. After all, you are what you love. Do you hear what David Foster Wallace is saying? He's saying, first of all, don't kid yourself about the reality that you worship something. But even more than that, he's saying, don't kid yourself about the reality that whatever you worship has the power to distort your life if you don't choose well. So look at Moses here. As we saw, he grew up not knowing who he was. And the the big question for Moses throughout his whole life would have been, 
Who am I? Who do I identify with? Where do I find my ultimate attachments? Who do I really identify with? So for Moses, what did it become? It became his ethnic identity and the cause of justice. Now, those are really good things. In fact, God says those are good things. God says those are important things. And and Moses gave himself to this cause of justice. But at that moment in his life, those were his real gods, and they blew up his life. Listen, justice is a good thing. In fact, the whole first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are all about God's concern for justice. Justice is is a wonderful thing, and yet history shows us revolution after revolution that instead of replacing the tyrant with a good ruler, it just swaps out a tyrant for a new tyrant. No matter how good something is, no matter how wonderful something is, if it's your career or uh, your family or your relationships or even a noble cause, it doesn't matter how good something is. If you worship anything other than God, it will blow up your life. It will distort your life. It'll ruin your life. No, maybe you won't kill somebody like Moses, at least not with your hands, but in your heart. What's going on inside of you? There's still that insecurity that anxiety, there's pride, there's arrogance, there's superiority, there's anger, there's resentment, there's bitterness, there's there's all kinds of desperate needs for approval or control or power or comfort. That stuff is there. It's inside of us, and it's distorting our lives because our hearts, even if you believe in God, are still tempted to serve and to worship all kinds of other gods. Friends, that is why we need this school that God sends Moses to. We need something that's going to pull our hearts off of all of the false gods that we're tempted to worship and center our hearts back on the real God. That's why we need it. But secondly, what is this school? What is this school that that God sends Moses to? Well, uh, very simply, it's the wilderness. God sends Moses out into the desert to be a shepherd for 40 years. And at a certain level, that makes really good sense because if God was going to call Moses to shepherd Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, well, this was really good training for him. But it's deeper than that. It's more than that. Because what is a wilderness? This is actually kind of difficult for us. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word, uh, word wilderness, what I think of is a forest. I think of trees and rivers and Bambi. Um, but that's not what the Hebrew word for wilderness actually means. The Hebrew word for wilderness is a word that really means the desert. The wilderness, the biblical wilderness, is a place that can't support life. There's no food, there's no shelter, there's no water. The biblical wilderness is is, is a place that is utterly devoid of everything we need to survive. And when God gets to work in your life, one of the main things he does is he will send you into the wilderness. The wilderness is the experience where, where everything you rely on is stripped away from you. The wilderness, a wilderness experience is an experience in which uh, you stop trusting on things that, that don't have the power to sustain you, and you start trusting in God. So look at Moses in this passage. You know, as we mentioned, if, if Moses was looking for his identity in things like his racial ethnic identity and in things like justice, the wilderness was the place where that got stripped away from him. In the wilderness, he had no identity left anymore. And you can see what a big issue this was for Moses. If you look at the end of that second paragraph in verse 22, when Moses and his wife had their child, 
Moses says that, it says that Moses called his name Gershom, which means uh, an alien there. He said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, those are the first words out of Moses' mouth in the, in the Bible. And that's significant. Because in the Bible, the first words out of a character's mouth always tell you a lot about that character. So the fact that this would be the first thing we hear Moses say in the Bible tells us what a huge question this was throughout the whole course of Moses' life. He, he spent his whole life, he grew up his whole life wondering, who am I? Who am I really? Who do I belong to? Where do I find my identity? The wilderness was the place where his false identity was stripped away from him and where he really began to come to terms with who he really was and what was really in his heart. The point of a wilderness experience is to strip you of all the false things that can't sustain you and get you to start trusting in God who can sustain you. Now, that may sound kind of cruel of God to do something like that, but it's your over-reliance on these things. It's your worship of all these false gods. That's what's creating all the problems in your life in the first place. You know, when God sends you to the wilderness, really, it's kind of like going to detox, you go to detox and, and all the things that you've been relying on that don't really have the power to sustain you, all those things get stripped away so that you can start relying on God. The problem is a lot of times we won't start relying on God until we have nothing left. So for instance, I read a book earlier this year by a Christian minister in Australia named Mark Sayers. And in the book, he tells a story about how a group of Japanese young people ended up at his church in Australia uh, you know, Japan is one of the most technologically and economically sophisticated countries in the world. And these Japanese students had grown up in megacities. Their whole lives were lived with like this constant um, sensory overload, um, not unlike our own country. In fact, um, there's a Japanese artist named Takashi Murakami who came up with a word to describe um, contemporary Japanese culture. He calls it super flat. And by that, he means visually very stimulating, but spiritually shallow. Now, that's somebody from within Japanese culture um, uh, offering a critique. That's not my word, but when I hear that, I can't help but think about our own American culture and how we're just as addicted to technology and entertainment and all kinds of other things. So Mark Sayers, he tells the story about how these Japanese teenagers, they, they got out of school and they wanted an adventure and so what they decided to do was, well, here's how Mark Sayers puts it. He says, they would come to Australia to go on the road. They would rent a car and drive out into the utter desolation of the Australian outback desert, where one can drive for days and see nothing and be deprived of stimulation. Outside of their super flat world, these young people would have a spiritual and existential breakdown. By the time they arrived on our church's doorstep, the super flat was detoxed out of their system, and the big questions of life, God, human existence, and death were now at the forefront of their mind. Friends, that is a wilderness experience. That is the school that God will send you to to pull your heart off of all of the false gods that you're tempted to worship. Now, it looks differently for different people. So for some of us, this wilderness experience, maybe it's a sickness. Maybe for others, it might be the loss of something like a job or a relationship. But something is central to you. Something is central to your life, to your meaning, to your identity, to your significance. And whatever it is, all of a sudden, it's gone. 
and you feel lost. You're in a wilderness. So look at what happened to Moses when he got into the wilderness. As we mentioned, one of the big questions for him, one of the big places that he was finding his identity was, when it was in his ethnic identity. The wilderness was the place where that was stripped away from him, but it was also the place where he finally began to come to terms with who he really was. Where he finally began to realize the truth about himself and, and about um, what his real identity was. That happened in the wilderness. Or we, we saw Moses' character needed a lot of work. You know, we think about Moses, and it's easy to think about him as this great hero of the faith, and he was. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He was incredibly humble. Where do you think that happened? It was in the wilderness. Moses did not start out that way. In this passage, he's full of arrogance and pride and impatience. The, the wilderness was the place where Moses was transformed into a person of patience and humility and service. It happened in the wilderness. Now, let me apply this to our lives before we move on to the next point. First, what does this mean for you if you're a Christian? If you're a Christian and you get into the wilderness, it's easy to think that, that you messed up, you missed God's will, and now your life is horribly off track. Like you just blew it. There was this certain path that your life was supposed to be on, but because you messed up, because you missed God's will, now, now you'll never get back on God's path for God's plan for your life. I want you to hear me on this. Don't you understand that you do not have that kind of power? Do you think that Moses missed God's will for his life? Yeah, maybe in the sense that, you know, it wasn't God's will that Moses would commit murder. But even if Moses missed God's will for Moses, God did not miss God's will for Moses. God did not miss it. No matter how big your failures and your mistakes are, no matter how badly you failed, no matter how tragic your mistakes are, your failures and your mistakes can never block God from accomplishing his purpose for your life. And even more than that, a lot of times when, when we get out in the wilderness, if you're a Christian, it's easy to feel like, well, God is punishing me. I blew it. I messed up. I really, um, I, I really sinned there. And, and now God is just punishing me. God does not punish his children. There's no need for that because Jesus took all of our punishment already on the cross. And it would be unjust of God to get two payments for the same sin. Friends, God does not punish his children. He already punished Jesus. Yes, he will bring discipline into your life. Yes, he will bring training into your life. Yes, it will be unpleasant. But the book of Hebrews tells us that if that happens to you, it's proof, it's evidence that God is really treating you like one of his children. It, that he's not rejecting you, he's beautifying you. He's transforming you into a person of substance and character if you let him. So that's what it... It shows us if you're a Christian, but secondly, if you're not a Christian here this morning, this passage shows us a picture of the gospel because it shows us a picture of grace. You know, the gospel is not, well, I decided to follow the ethical and moral teachings of Jesus, and now, therefore, God is pleased with me. Now, therefore, God accepts me. The gospel is not, you clean up your life, and, and then you offer God a good life, and then God gets to work in your life. That's religion, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is God gets to work in your life before you're even looking for him. God gets to work in your life while your life is a mess. Look at Moses in this passage. Yes, as I just said, we think of him as this great hero of the faith, but that's not where he started. 
He messed up. He blew it. He ruined his life. This passage shows us probably one of the lowest points in Moses' life, and yet God is powerfully and, and, and magnificently at work in Moses' life here in this passage. Friends, that's grace. Grace means that, that God gets to work in your life before you invite him, that God gets to work in your life before you're looking for him. That God gets to work in your life even when your life is a mess. So if you're here this morning and you feel like your life is in a wilderness, like your life is on a detour, whether you're a Christian or not, I want you to understand that that your failures and your mistakes cannot ever possibly block God from fulfilling his purpose in your life. That God's grace to restore your life is infinitely bigger than your ability to mess up your life. And that means that God's primary project in your life, his big project in your life, is not primarily about changing your circumstances. And I know that's what we want him to do. That's what I want him to do. God, change the circumstances. Fix it. And and it's not to say that God isn't concerned about changing the circumstances of the world. He is. Exodus proves it to us. Exodus shows us a God who is passionately concerned to change the circumstances of the Israelites' oppression, to change the circumstances of the Israelites' slavery and their bondage. But while God is doing something about the world, he's also doing something about your life. This is not an either-or, it's a both-and. And what God is doing about your life is he is not primarily concerned with changing the circumstances of your life. He is concerned with changing you. That's what he's up to. And that leads us to our last point. We've seen why we need God's school, and we've seen what it is. It's the wilderness. But the last thing we need to see is, how does it work? Because here's maybe one of the most important things that we need to see here. Just because you have a wilderness experience, that does not mean that um, all of this wonderful transformation God wants to do in your life is automatically going to happen. I think we all know lots of people who who've gone into the wilderness, um, who've had lots of suffering in their life, and it it actually makes them more bitter, more self-centered, more self-absorbed. It makes them more hard of heart. It actually pulls them further away from God, not closer to God. The question is, how is the wilderness going to actually draw us closer to God? The only way is to see the ultimate man in the wilderness to whom Moses points. What do I mean? Well, what is it that Moses wanted to do? Yes, he wanted to rescue his people, but, but the reason he wanted to rescue his people was because he wanted to identify with them. He wanted to, he wanted to have solidarity with his people. We saw over and over, Moses' big question throughout his whole life is, who do I identify with? Who am I going to show solidarity with? Moses was both prince of Egypt and prince of Israel, but he got to a point in his life where he had to make a choice. And the tragic irony of of Moses' choice was that in choosing one, he lost both. In choosing Israel, not only was he rejected by Egypt, he was also rejected by Israel. Who made you prince and judge over us, they said. And so as a result, Moses had to run into the wilderness. But, But when Moses went into the wilderness, Moses had to go into the wilderness because Moses needed the wilderness. He needed the character transformation. He needed the discipline in his life. Moses wanted to identify with his people. Moses wanted to rescue his people, but Moses couldn't do it perfectly. Moses couldn't do it without failing. Don't you know what this shows us? It it points us to our need of a true hero, a true shepherd, 
a true rescuer, somebody who can identify with us and rescue us, but who can do so without failure. Where do we get that? One of the most amazing things about this passage, and really the whole first two chapters of Exodus, is that it's only after Moses wanted to rescue his people but failed, and only after uh, Moses messed up his life and had to run into the wilderness, it's only after all of that that God finally steps onto the scene in a powerful way. Because if you were with us, one of the things we saw last week is that the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, there's hardly any mention of God at all. All it is is setback after setback, failure after failure, delay after delay, over and over again, until finally it's like, you know, these last verses of chapter 2 are like the Bible's way of telling us that human power can't save the world. Only God can. So that by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, when God steps on the scene, it's like, you know, it's only after God essentially put Moses in a 40-year timeout that that we get uh, verses 23 through 25, which say, During those many days, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Two whole chapters hardly a mention of God, and then finally here, only after Moses has failed and everything's fallen apart, only finally here, it's like hammer stroke after hammer stroke, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. God is on the scene. Because what these three verses is showing us is that only God could do perfectly what Moses tried to do but failed. Moses wanted to go out and see the the, the suffering of his people, but he couldn't. Moses wanted to go out and identify with his people. He couldn't. Moses wanted to go out and rescue his people. He couldn't, but God can. And one of the most powerful and poignant parts of this whole thing is really the last few words of the last verse of the whole chapter where it says, and God knew. That word to know is a very distinct word in Hebrew. It doesn't just mean intellectual knowledge. In Hebrew, the word to know means... um, personal experience. It's a very relational word. In fact, um, Terence Fretham wrote a great commentary on the book of Exodus. I mentioned him last week. Terence Fretham says about this word, this Hebrew word, to know. He says, to know is to so share the experience of another that that person's experience could be called your own. Now, here's the question. How in the world is God supposed to know like this, supposed to know the Israelites' suffering? How is he supposed to know their sorrow, to know their grief and their pain and their misery? How is the infinite, eternal God of the universe supposed to to, to make their experience, to share that experience so much that, that that experience could rightfully be called God's experience? The only way is for God to come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, because who is Jesus? I mean, don't you realize by now, who was Moses? He was the prince of two countries, prince of Egypt, prince of Israel. But Jesus is the ultimate Moses, prince of heaven and prince of earth. And just as Moses, in choosing one, was rejected by both, when Jesus chose us, he was rejected by both heaven and earth. Because on the cross, Jesus identified with his people. He identified with you. Because on the cross, Jesus knew. 
He knew your suffering. He knew your sorrow. He knew our pain, our misery, our grief. He knew our sin. And on the cross, he took all of that upon himself, so much so that that could be called his own. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ went out into the ultimate wilderness. He was stripped of everything. He was rejected by everyone and everything, including God. He was stripped of everything, not so that he could know God, but so that you could know God, so that we could know God. And when you see Jesus doing that for you, there's the hero that you need. There's the shepherd that you need. Not the false, failing one like Moses, but the true shepherd who can carry you through the wilderness, who can identify with you and carry you through all the wilderness experiences of your life so that when you see Jesus doing that for you, there's the shepherd you need, there's the hero you need, there's the rescuer you need. That, that if you don't reject him but embrace him, he's the shepherd, the true shepherd, that can carry, through, carry you through your wilderness wanderings. Friends, God's big project in your life is not so much to change your circumstances, it's to change you. He is the shepherd that's going to carry you through your wilderness. He's going to transform your life. Will you let him? Will you follow him? Will you trust him? Let's pray.